Hello, hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the All For One podcast. I'm going to be your host, Jamie Lowe, and I'm very excited to have you with us at the start of a brand new show, where myself and a panel of people living with type 1 diabetes will talk and get real about life with type 1 and also celebrate the incredible people who are trying to make our lives a little better. So over the next hour or so, myself and this brand spanking new panel of people in your ears will be discussing the times when our diabetes management didn't go to plan. We'll have an update on the latest tech in the type 1 world and we'll be hearing from some of the incredible JDRF supporters who ran the London Marathon. Also, listen out for how you can get involved in this very podcast later on in the show. So that's all all on the way but before all of that let me introduce you to our incredible panel of people so first up today we're gonna meet paul paul coker so paul you run a diabetes related website don't you yes i run a website called onebloodydrop.com which is all about helping people with type 1 diabetes to find methods to manage their blood glucose levels before during and after exercise Fantastic. So you're all about fitness and type one, which is very fitting for today's episode. We're going to be hearing from some London marathon runners, but you've also got a fitness challenge on the way, haven't you? We'll hopefully hear a bit more about that later. So let's now introduce you to panel member number two, who is Noni and Noni Dougal. You are a mum of someone with type one. You also have type one yourself. So I guess in a way you're acting as two pancreases. Yes, I really am. Hello there, everybody. Um, yes, my eight-year-old son was diagnosed six months ago with type 1 diabetes. It was really quite a surprise to us, but I'm very happy with how I'm managing his condition generally, and he's, he's being really good. I've had diabetes for 27 years now, so I'm very experienced with yeah. it, which is good. <laughs> You definitely know what you're doing. 27 years. Well, wow. yeah. I'm yeah. very new to diabetes. I've only had it. I think we're coming up to my fourth anniversary now. So, yes, oh, wow. Noni, you are the voice of experience. And another voice of experience yeah. is our third and final panel member, who is James Ridgway. So, James, you work in healthcare, don't you? I do, yes. Uh, so basically, I'm a, I'm a registered nurse. I have a clinical background, um, but I presently work in research and education in diabetes. I work at the Leicester Diabetes Centre with the Eden team, and we basically educate doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals about diabetes in general. And I obviously have type 1 diabetes, and I, I wasn't diagnosed that long ago, uh, slightly longer than you, Jamie, but I was diagnosed in 2012 when I was actually training as um, a nurse at the time and I was told that I didn't have diabetes when I was diagnosed and that sort of brought me on to wanting to educate others about diabetes, particularly healthcare professionals. Fantastic. Well, James, thank you very much. I think we should ask Paul as well because we've, we've heard it from everyone else. Paul, how long have you been type 1? 42 years. Wow. Okay. Wow. So he's just beat you there, Noni. I'm sorry. He's got you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, Noni and James, it's very good to have you as our first panel. But over the coming months, we're going to be hearing from different voices on the show. So if you'd like to be involved, then why don't you send me a quick email to contact all the number four 
one spelt o-n-e at gmail.com that email again is contact all for one the number four at gmail.com or you can get in touch on social media we are at all for one insta on instagram at all for one tweet on twitter and at all for one online on facebook and as always that four is always the number four and then for some silly reason i decided to spell the one so that's all for one spelt a-double-l the number four then o-n-e so on to our first discussion topic of the episode so it is time to confess we're all human which means we are all very prone to mistakes so i think it's about time that we all cough up and share and i'll tell you why so a few weeks ago I was having a really rough day and I went on to social media, to Instagram, which is obviously a very bad thing to do if you're not feeling great. And it was because of my diabetes. And I was scrolling past all these incredible pictures of incredible people doing incredible things with type one. So I've seen people on surfboards and, you know, climbing mountains, all with perfect blood sugar. And it just made me feel even worse. But then I saw one person post about the fact that they were having a bad day with diabetes too. And that made me feel better. So that's the reason that I think we should talk about this and own up to some of the times when we made a complete face palm and we didn't do so well with our diabetes. So who's going to be brave enough to own up to a confession first? So um, I, I was... 19 years old, I'd had type 1 diabetes for about 14 or 15 years at the time. And um, I was um, interested in a young lady, should we say. And we went out uh, with, with a group of people and we, we found ourselves being deserted by the group for a little while. And um, the next thing I know, I'm coming round from a fairly severe hypo, I blacked out, and apparently as I came round, I asked this young lady out on a date. <laughs> uh, I have no memory of ever asking her out on the date, but it has a rather happy ending because we're still married today. Oh, brilliant. Well, that worked out for you. I can't say many people's hypos has ended in nuptials. Wow, what, what a story. So you have no recollection, really, of the moment when your relationship with your wife began? No. And I bet that's a great story to dine out, about, out on. I bet that went down well with, with all your friends at the wedding. It certainly did. So, Noni, you were trying to get in there as well. What What, what was your confession <laughs> that you want to share? Well, I asked my sister because I was trying to think of funny stories and I was saying, well, a lot of my hypos and et cetera, they've been really quite serious. But she said, well, it was really funny when you drove the wrong way down the wrong way street. Wow. She said, and also it was really funny when you woke up with low sugar levels and I had apparently a tooth guard, a mouth tooth guard in my mouth and I sang happy birthday very badly to my daughter with this this tooth guard in slurring all the words I'm not even sure it was her birthday <laughs> how so terrifying she thought that was really, really funny. wow well yes, I'm not sure quite terrifying 
I'm not sure I could top that, Noni. So we've got some <laughs> maybe slightly dangerous driving and also um, yeah, a terrifying so rendition of Happy Birthday. <laughs> I think we'll leave that there for now on that bombshell. If you do want to get involved with the conversation, you can get in touch with us on social media. We'd love to hear your confessions and the times when your diabetes management didn't go to plan. You can get in touch with us on Instagram. We are at all for one insta On Twitter, we are at all for one tweet And on Facebook, we are at all for one online and there's always that four is the number, but the one isn't. A double L, the number four, O N E. Or you can get in touch with the show on the emails. You can contact us at contact all for one at gmail.com. We've got some very funny confessions actually that you've been sending into us. So I'm going to read out those a little later on. But first, how far would you go to raise money to find a cure for diabetes? Well, how about running 26.2 miles? Just off a busy street in Chinatown in the west end of central London, a room full of blue banners awaits over 140 tired people, having just run the London Marathon in support of JDRF. A team of masseurs stand waiting to rub away the aches and pains of running for over 26 miles, but one man has already completed his race. In fact, he got to the finishers party long before I did. Mark Collingworth is sitting nibbling on a sandwich with his marathon medal tucked into his jacket. It was amazing, absolutely amazing. The, the crowds were just incredible. Um, yeah, so much support all the way around. The JDRF is my company's corporate charity partner uh, and JDRF offered the company free marathon places. Uh, and I stuck my hand up with uh, a couple of my colleagues to, to take one of those places. So in 2008, I ran three hours, 27 minutes, uh, and I'd given myself a target 11 years on to try and beat that. Uh, and I ran 3.24, so I'm absolutely delighted. The room's a bit fuller now. The masseurs are kept busy with a now constant stream of marathon finishers propelled along the course by the fact that the money that they've raised will go towards finding a cure for type 1 diabetes. And also, the miles and miles of cheering crowds. It always helps, yeah. I mean, I remember last time the, the, the bit through Docklands was quiet and I found that the hardest bit because there was no support at all. So, yeah, it definitely helps to have that. My godson, uh, he's five years old, his name's Charlie, um, and he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes uh, early last year. Um, and his father, he and I worked together, we're best friends, and um, he did this last year, and he suggested, why don't you join in and we can double our efforts and uh, raise twice the amount. Um, so, yeah, why not? I like a challenge. I've done it once before, so I, I like the idea of doing it again. And it was seemed a really good charity to, to raise funds for. Yeah. Uh, I take it you finished first. We still wait for your... Yeah, yeah. he hasn't finished yet. <laughs> yeah. That was the voice of Dave Flynn there. And if you'd like to get involved in fundraising for JDRF, then you'll find out more on their website, which is JDRF. .org.uk. We're going to be hearing from more marathon runners later in the programme, including a man that's dressed as a teddy bear. But guys, I wonder how far have you ever run to find a cure? Paul, I, I, you, you've got a, an event coming up, haven't you? Yes. So um, in 2016-2017, to celebrate 40 years of living with type 1 diabetes, I actually ran 40 half marathons in a year. And 
it finished with a record-breaking attempt to get the most people with type 1 diabetes to run the same half marathon, which was at Swansea Half Marathon in 2017. Uh, and we were successful in that, so we had 26 runners with type 1 diabetes running the same half marathon. And then last year we decided we were going to smash our own record, and so we had 69 runners with type 1 diabetes last year. Uh, and Diabetes UK have taken the uh, lead on it this year, and they are recruiting, and they're going to try and beat my record. Wow. Uh, and I'm fully in support of them doing it, and I'm running with them. And so if we can get more than 69 runners with type 1, that will be amazing. Well, uh, on the 23rd of June. You've already uh, told me about it, and I am going to actually be there. So hopefully I'll be there to beat the record with you. But James, seeing as you're a healthcare professional, um, I guess you can let us know about this the most. Exercise is fantastic for people living with type 1 diabetes, isn't it? Certainly is, absolutely. So... Even for myself, I find exercise really beneficial. It obviously puts glucose into the muscles and, you know, you can see the benefits after you uh, exercise as well. Like, say for me, I've done like an hour run or something like that. You don't, I don't really need to inject that much afterwards. But obviously the risk is that the more exercise you do, the higher risk of going into hypoglycemic episodes there is following the exercise as well. Yeah, and I think it's, it's regular testing to keep us all safe. But I think me personally, I don't know about you guys, when, when I do some exercise, my management are, is, is so much better for several days afterwards. So it, that's almost like an incentive for me to work out because it's, you know, it makes my life so much easier anyway. Yes, yes, that is true. That is true. It does have quite a big impact um, for... A long time after really it's surprising how how long it does bring your sugar levels down for well still to come today we're going to be confessing to more diabetes sins and we'll be hearing from our first type one to watch where we feature someone doing amazing work for the community but first since we were on the topic of fundraising with paul's charity challenge let's talk about fundraising shall we so i'm very conscious personally of donor fatigue so you know in this age of social media you go on to you know pick a social media app you know any sort of timeline and there's always someone asking for money now you know they're always going to be for good causes but obviously we all have a, a cause to raise money for type 1 diabetes so yeah. I just worry about doing my own charity challenges I feel a bit you know like there's there's too much of it out there so personally i'm a bit self-conscious whenever i decide to raise money for my chosen charity because there's so many more people out there Did, does anyone else have you know that's that sort of feeling yes i do i do actually because i literally see so so many people raising money for charity and you do get the feeling there's only so much money you can give to different charities however uh, my um youngest son who's recently diagnosed with diabetes um primary school they've got a lot of young children with diabetes so i'm going to when the jrfd have their fundraising day they're super i think it's a superhero fundraising day i'm going to give the school plenty of advance notice and bring it to them because i know that they will happily help and well, the kids can all have a superhero dress up day and, and i which think is 
yeah. it, with put kids into the mix and I think there's going to be lots of money raised there but I yeah, just yeah. I just see the same people over and over again asking for money for a charity on social media and yeah. I just always feel like oh god I don't want to be that guy I mean I, I've only probably done it about twice but maybe Paul mm-hmm. seen as is you uh, you know you organize an event like this before how how do you make sure that your charity challenge cuts through the noise and actually gets those donations when there's so many other people asking for them as well it's a really difficult thing to do um and what we've done in the past is to rather than ask individuals for money actually approach companies that are involved in the diabetes world for money and that's worked quite well so last year we got donations for about 35,000 pounds by going out to pharmaceutical companies and technology companies and I didn't ask for or take a single personal donation Ah, in previous years I have gone out for personal donations and that as you say that's just very hard because people have donor fatigue and they also get a little bit tired of you going up and asking the same people for donations for similar events um, you know, I've been out and uh, I climbed Kilimanjaro and I raised money by asking people for that. And then I started running half marathons and I asked people for money for that. And you just kind of get to this point where you see this look of fear on somebody's face. And, oh, here he comes again. <laughs> <laughs> so you were that guy. You were that guy that I was talking about, the guy with all the sponsorship forms. You know, my uncle is actually just doing a sponsored bike ride. He's doing it for Dougie Mack, a, a cancer hospice charity. And actually, he has got quite a few um, donations, but I noticed that he was doing it all face to face. So he was using a sponsorship form. So maybe the fact that we all do it on social media now is 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 affecting how much money people are giving, because I noticed that his sponsorship full uh, form was full of fivers. I mean, in my experience, when I've raised funds, the last time I did a big one was where I cycled from Grantham in Lincolnshire to Land's End and back, and I did it in eight days, and I, I got hit by a car and a bus on the way, but <laughs> oh, But I found when I was raising the funds that the most effective way was actually doing it in person, uh, particularly in shopping centres, because they would approach you, ask you what you're doing, and I think it's more that personal touch, whereas sometimes on social media that's also has its advantages but i think sometimes the personal touch is missed as well and in in regards to like feeling like guilt that you're not you know fundraising towards other things not giving money towards other charities i think it's you can really get burnout in that and i think it's all about doing things that you're passionate about so i'm doing a marathon in september and i'm going to do it for uh the leicester diabetes center so that's all about the research and things like that so you know because I work in that environment and it's all about funding for research in diabetes. That's something I can really create passion in and, and I can try and, you know, get as much money in as possible. And I think if, you know, if you're doing it on a regular basis for lots of different charities, I can see the burnout that causes in that really. Mm, yeah, well, I know a, a guy in Bristol personally, he's called Daz and he does incredible things. He, you know, fundraises to get kids you know life-saving operations and that's what he's known for that is his thing but i just um i wouldn't be able to do that to to keep going back with you know with you know asking for money with my palms open but i guess you know that's just like you said there james he's so passionate about it that comes really natural to him so i guess i guess that's sort of what this podcast is as well so i'm 
you know, passionate about spreading the word and, you know, creating diabetes related content. So I guess maybe if I find raising money a bit too, I guess, cringy to do, you know, I've done it in the past, but maybe I'm more comfortable with creating content that spreads awareness. Maybe, maybe I'm just giving myself, you know, an easy out there, but we will leave that one there for now. If you do want to get involved in the conversation, as always, you can get in touch on social media. We're on Instagram at all for one instant. We're on Twitter at all for one tweet and we're on Facebook at all for one online, or you can email us. That's contact all for one at gmail.com. And as always, that's the number four and I've spelt the one. So on the other side of the break, we're going to be meeting our first type one to watch. We'll have more of those juicy diabetes confessions. We're going to be back in a bit. Hello guys, Jamie here. Thank you so much for downloading the All For One podcast. Why not consider supporting this show and promote your brand or business in this airtime? You can contact us on contactallforone at gmail.com for more info. Or if not, consider supporting the podcast another way by following us on social media. We're on Instagram at All For One Insta and Twitter at All For One Tweets. And welcome back to the All For One podcast. I am Jamie Lowe and I'm here with Paul Coker, Noni Dougal and James Ridgway. And in a bit, we'll be getting an update on the latest news in the Type 1 world. And we'll also be owning up to those times when we messed up. If you want to get involved with our conversation today, you can get in touch on the socials. We're on Instagram at All For One Insta. We're on Twitter too at All For One Tweet. And we are on Facebook at All For One online but it's now time to meet our first type one to watch which is a feature where we are going to be meeting someone doing great things in the type one community hi i'm welcome Mark. i'm 10 years old i have type one diabetes i play football and i play with Cumnock juniors my challenge was to walk 28 miles across 14 stadiums in four days. Well, I broke my leg playing football uh, and I felt sad and down when like, I broke it. So that's why I chose mental health as one of my charities. Um, and I chose KDRF because I have diabetes. Hi there, I'm Leslie Murdoch and I'm Lachlan's mum. The support that we got from Lachlan and the, when we decided to start the challenge was quite incredible and it really started to take off quite quickly. We didn't, we didn't really think that it would capture as much attention as it did. Initially when Lachlan had the idea of doing the 28 miles you know, being the stadium marathon, he wanted to raise as much money and as much awareness for both charities. JDRF especially because, you know, it's a charity very close to our hearts and it's, we wanted to get the awareness out there because people, there's not that much understanding, I suppose, around type one, but it can be a bit misunderstood sometimes. And I think it's really important to get that information out there and that's what Lachlan really wanted to do. So when we 
got the support from local communities, local businesses, and then it started to grow Scotland-wide and then Great Britain-wide. It's really been, it's just been something that we, we really didn't expect to happen, but it's been equally fantastic to know that everyone has supported Lachlan in the way that they have. So that was Lachlan and Leslie Murdoch there. What what a little star, wasn't he? he raised ten thousand pounds. Absolutely amazing. Yep, that is absolutely brilliant. Bless him. I mean, that's such a great thing for a, such a boy of such an age as well. Just to cope with the disease, you know, the condition, let alone you know, do such a thing for charity is amazing. I think. Well, this the story went. I, I guess a little bit viral. I've been seeing Lachlan on, you know, BBC local news. I've been seeing him all all online. But I think that's down to his mum, Leslie. I think she did a cracking job of getting the story out there. So thank you to Lachlan and Leslie there. If you know someone doing something cool for the community, then get in touch on the email, which is contact all for one at gmail.com and you or they could be our next type one to watch. We've got a news update on the way, but first time to go back to the London Marathon. Oh, it's great. Yeah, the first half was actually slower than the second, to be honest. It's uh... Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a challenge, and I've got, I've got a pretty dodgy leg. So, uh, yeah, Mike Clapham and his dodgy leg have just run the London Marathon. I'm here at the JDRF finishers party where the solid 9 out of 10 finger buffet is quickly being demolished by the hungry runners and their cheer squads. Uh, my nephew is type 1 diabetic. Um, I was, uh, I was on, actually on holiday when he, he, was, he was actually, then we came back from the holiday over in the States and that's when he was actually diagnosed. He actually crashed and he actually spent a good few days in hospital and it was just awful. During the holiday he was like, you know, constantly craving salt, um, really dark under the eyes, all the sort of telltale signs and then unfortunately it was literally soon after we came back from holiday he spent, it was in hospital and that was when he was first diagnosed. So it, is, it means a lot to our family. Um, so it's great, I've, I've run for JDR for a number of times. And so it's obviously a charity close, close to our heart. So it's just been brilliant raising, raising some money for them. And uh, speaking to Luan, it looks like the team, the team have done really well. So that's the main thing. What you can hear there is a team of JDRF staff members and volunteers who leap into action when another successful finisher enters the room. And this one is looking a bit more tired than the rest. Mark Conlin ran the London Marathon dressed as a teddy bear. So I was dressed as Rufus Bear. Um, Rufus is a, is a bear that JDRF gives to children that are newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and it shows where the, the, the children can have injections or blood tests. Um, so it only seemed fitting. I've done a couple of other marathons in fancy dress. So it seemed fitting that this time I ran as Rufus, with Rufus. So I ran off too fast and I got hot. Um, so it, it, was just, it was about then trying to manage my temperature and trying to make sure I kept getting fluids in. But the crowds were, were awesome. We're having Rufus across my chest. I think I have to change my name to Rufus because there was, a, there was a sort of wave of people shouting Rufus and as long as you acknowledged them, they carried on. So, uh, so it, was, it, was really, it was really good, and particularly when you got to the supporter zones, I give you that, that extra, extra perk and get, get you going. So that was a very sweaty Mark Conlin there. So did you know, so it was, this, it was this London Marathon 
where they broke the one million pound ceiling. So since since it started back in the 80s, a billion pounds has been raised for charity since then. Tons of money, tons of money, billion pounds. So I actually wow. um, was a bit confused when I was actually there. So I, I thought that that particular London Marathon had raised a billion pounds. It was only later when I actually sort of thought about it that, that a billion pounds is, is a lot of money. So for 40,000 <laughs> runners to have raised a billion pounds would be an absolute miracle. But Paul... Paul, I wonder, have you ever ran dressed as anything? Seen as you're you're a runner and you do fun runs and raise money and things like that. Have you ever done it in fancy dress? No, I've never run in fancy dress. I have appeared as Rufus at a number of Discovery Days, um, and I take my hat off to the guy because <laughs> that outfit is hot. Is it? So you, you've experienced life inside Rufus, inside Rufus's costume. I, I guess it's quite claustrophobic as well. It is. It's big, it's heavy, it's claustrophobic. And um, if I'm being very blunt, it smells. <laughs> because a lot of other people have, have used, have, have appeared as Rufus before. And if any, if any kids yeah. are listening, there is a real Rufus out there. It's just every now and again, people decide to dress up as Rufus to be in the places where he can't always be. So don't worry, kids. Rufus is real. So in a moment, we're going to have more of those juicy confessions that you've been sending in. But first, let's get a news update. It's time for the latest news in the Type 1 world. I'm Chris Jay. New research suggests nearly 40% of adults with type 1 diabetes were misdiagnosed and initially treated for type 2 diabetes instead. The study by the University of Exeter found a third of those analysed were not given insulin, instead they received medication intended for those with type 2 diabetes for up to 13 years. Currently, guidance from the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence for the diagnosis of diabetes does not recommend rigorous testing to differentiate between type 1 and type 2 in adults. Next, the Kalido Patch Insulin Pump, which is the smallest pump on the market according to its manufacturers, is set to launch in the UK. Vicentra, that make the pump, are planning to distribute it themselves and over the summer recruit their first UK users. But don't throw away your old one just yet. The pump won't be widely available in the UK until much later in the year. Sticking with the Kalido pump now, and the manufacturers have announced that they're teaming up with Diabeloop to provide a commercially available closed-loop system. The Diabeloop system uses data from continuous glucose monitoring and artificial intelligence to automatically determine the correct dose of insulin to administer to the user through a patch pump. There's no release date set yet, but Diabeloop have said that their hybrid closed-loop system will be coming to selected countries across Europe. And finally, an eight-year-old girl who initially struggled with a type 1 diabetes diagnosis is raising money for the hospital where she was treated. Sophie Lee Barker-Brown is aiming to raise £5,000 for Sheffield Children's Hospital diabetes team. And although Sophie Lee is now focused on her fundraising efforts, her mother Karen said the diagnosis was initially a tough blow. That's the latest news in the Type 1 world. Now back to the All For One podcast. Well, that was a bit of a shock of that first story. So adults are being diagnosed with the wrong kind of diabetes for up to 13 years. I've uh, heard that many a times and uh, many colleagues that I've worked with have, have seen that occurrence so much because particularly those that are 
you know a large proportion and you know obese people i think i think they get a, a lot of original thought that oh it's a person living with type 2 when in fact you know it it's misdiagnosed and i think it's uh, you know with all these new types that are coming into place i think it's something that might crop up more and more but hopefully with new research and uh, better education for healthcare professionals i think hopefully we'll try and get past that uh, stigmatism i suppose you could almost come into it a bit as well it was it was mentioned in the story wasn't it that it was down to the the nice guidelines which which sort of say you know rigorous testing of to determine which type isn't you know isn't advised yeah. so um maybe you know maybe She's the guidelines do need to really change silly. but yeah. i i guess you know if there's, there's such this explosion of people with type 2 diabetes it, it must be very easy for people with type 1 if they appear to be someone who would likely have type 2 diabetes to slip through the net yeah, I recently met a lovely young lady with, um, and, and she'd been misdiagnosed for a few years with type 2 diabetes, and it turns out she had type 1 diabetes. Um, and she said that it, it was, she was actually quite relieved to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes because there is quite a bit of a stigma with type 2 diabetes people are, oh yes you you get type 2 when you're obese etc and um, so yeah she was actually quite relieved to be diagnosed with type 1 and obviously she needed insulin anyway so she would have felt a lot healthier with insulin well, yeah, I guess even sort of like, you know, stigma and what people say aside, the important part yeah. really is that you're getting the right treatment. and The medication, yeah, absolutely. And absolutely, I, of course. Am I right in saying, James, that the, um, people with type 2 diabetes are treated with like a tablet? Is it metformin? Yeah, mm -hmm. so traditionally, the you know, normally the first-line treatment will always be metformin. Some cases, they might try diet and exercise. Before their diagnosis, they, they will, you know, hopefully be identified as, as a high-risk um, person that's high-risk of developing it. So they'll go on an education course uh, to improve their lifestyle and, uh, you know, like exercise, diet, etc. And then they'll be reviewed. But if they, they go past the diagnostic blood test, then they would consider whether they need to be put on metformin and then as the years go by um, hopefully things will be well controlled but if not if things are still not being good with their bloods then they'll progress the treatments and there's a lot more out there as well and some of the treatments that are being used in type 2 diabetes are now being incorporated into type 1 diabetes so metformin is also a, a treatment that can be used in type 1 diabetes and there's also a um, injectable therapies that are being introduced as well as well as a tablet called an SGLT2 which is commonly used in type 2 that is now starting to come into place in type 1 so there's a lot out there and I think that will also maybe complicates things between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes well there we go
we are learning a lot today, aren't we? I'm, I'm learning loads from you, James. So uh, we'll leave the news there for now. Thanks uh, to Nerdabetic for his help in getting all of that together. He makes some great content on YouTube and he really does know his stuff about all that diabetes tech. So thank you to him for those. But now it's time to get back to those confessions. Now, I, I know I've, I've sort of gone off the hook here and I haven't confessed to anything. So mine is one that I keep doing and it's so silly but it's I, I can sort of understand why I do it so what what I essentially do is leave the house without my insulin pump attached like what a shocker is that so and 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 I, and I always find out like when I'm in a place where I definitely cannot go back and get my insulin pump so I think what happens is is I get out the shower and then my day starts somewhere between me getting out the shower and getting out the door and what I mean by my day starts is that like you know people are calling me I'm I'm late for something I'm, I'm really really you know a little bit stressed and I just forget it i just sort of leave it there I, I often find it when i come back still in the pocket of my pajamas that i took off so that is my confession can anyone beat that <laughs> uh not in a pump sense but um i suppose with being a nurse we're, we're always meant to prescribe and administer well administer the right medication but i must confess that i have twice uh, during my time of having type 1 diabetes injected the wrong type of insulin uh, to myself N never to patients obviously um, <laughs> one of them was at night time where I give myself my long acting insulin uh, which is was at the time about 36 units and instead I injected 36 units of Nova Rapid wow and, uh, I quickly realized I <laughs> I didn't I was like oh god what I'm gonna do so I drove quickly down to um, the closest McDonald's I could and I think I had to give you know ingest 300 carbs in just one meal uh, so I think I had like one Big Mac, one milkshake, one full-fat Coke and a, and a McFlurry. And it was so wonderful. I've, I've got to admit to something along those lines. So, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't give myself 36 units of Nova Rapid, which I can't, I can only imagine, like, the, the feeling of your, you know, heart sinking to the bottom of your chest when you realise what you've just done. Oh, but yeah. I sort of, when I was using um, insulin pens, what I would do is... This this sounds so silly to admit to it, but I would give myself like a little bit extra and I knew what I was doing, but I would pretend that I didn't know what I was doing. I'd pretend that I'd miscalculated my carbs and give myself more insulin. So later on, when I started to have a hypo, I could have like a, a couple of biscuits like that. It's, it's sort of a weird way that I was rationalizing the fact that I wanted a sweet treat later by pretending to myself that I'd miscalculated my carbs how insane is that <laughs> that yes yes that does sound quite insane i do do that but i do it in full knowledge that i'm giving myself <laughs> a little bit extra so i can have a snack later on because yep i like to snack so um, a confession i gave my eight-year-old um my dose of levomere my the he has 6.5 I have 15 at night. I have a split dose. Unfortunately, I gave my son 15, which is insane. After I did that, thankfully, he was absolutely fine and everything was fine. But after that, I bought myself a fantastic labelling machine and labelled 
everything. I, I tidied up his diabetes drawer. I labelled his Novapen and I put, you know, 6.5, Levomir, etc. So I won't make that mistake again. It's, it's, these things are very easily done because they become so automatic. Yeah, and also, I mean, you're managing two type 1 diabetics. Yeah. You're managing yourself and your son. So I, yes. think, I think we can absolve you of your sins there and everyone else you know let's absolve our sins right now because i just really yes. think it's important yes. to talk about these things because noni i think you know i think you're quite brave actually saying on a public platform that you did yeah. that because people are so worried about you know what what other people will say but i think that's the way that we normalize these things that's the way that we stop ourselves feeling awful because these mistakes do happen it's okay yes. to make a mistake and it's okay to own up to it too so i just want to read out a few that people have sent in and the first one comes from george on twitter that's at count carbula and he says if i didn't have type 1 diabetes i would 100 percent be an absolute whale i just wouldn't stop eating every cloud has a silver lining i guess and i guess that's the same with me because that's when i started actually really being a little bit healthy is when i was diagnosed with type 1 so thanks george for sending that another one who comes from an anonymous uh, sender that was um, bad control when I was a teen. Now at 27, I need injections and laser eye surgery. So I think that's injections in their eyes. So I think that, that can be a very, a very dangerous um, thought because we know from the research that some people who work incredibly hard and have incredibly good management of their diabetes go on to develop complications. And yet other people who don't work so hard and don't have the same level of good management, don't go on to develop complications. And there is definitely a genetic factor at play. We don't yet understand all of the um, mechanics behind the complications. So um, I, I, for one, would suggest that we move away from this blame game around diabetes and complications. And actually, I, I take a view of if I go on to develop complications, they're just the scars that I have from living with a an autoimmune condition that probably should have killed me. That's that's a really nice way to look at it, actually. I think that's why it's important to talk yeah. about these things because, like you said, Paul, the blame game is something really dangerous. And I know, I know personally the feelings that I get when I have an unexpected hyper or a hypo. It's just it just destroys your day, doesn't it? And I think it's really important yes. that we do take a step back and you know normalize all of these things. And I've got I've got quite a funny one here because I think I think we've got a bit serious there. So let's let's lighten the load. And this one comes from another anonymous person on. Instagram. I was so glad my daughter learned to do her own injections at 19 because she couldn't handle it. <laughs> so, Noni, I guess when you, it was time to do your son's injections, you were very well versed with all of that sort of stuff, weren't you? Do you know, he does his own injections. He's absolutely fantastic. He's really, really good, bless him. He's, um, it's, it's taken a while. Um, I have to prompt him for every injection, every blood test, etc. He hasn't currently got a CGM, but he will soon. Um, but he, he prefers to do his own injections, which is brilliant. Yeah, so when I was first diagnosed, because I, ha I you know, I'm, I'm not completely all right with needles but i got mm -hmm. all right with needles very quickly because i think i think you do have to don't you so yeah, what yeah, you i would do. always have to do is I, I didn't mind it so much having an injection 
Now this was before I had to inject insulin, but I'd have to turn my head away from yeah. the the phlebotomist. I think that's what they're called, or the, the nurse yeah. who was ever delivering an injection. But I guess James, maybe you could um, explain a bit further about how you get someone who has a fear of needles to be able to administer administer themselves insulin. So needle phobia is very. It, it's not common but it is more common in people that live with diabetes that inject. And it's really hard to deal with for, for some people needle phobia, but there are many things that out there that can help with someone that has needle phobia. Uh, so there are uh, kind of needle um, discrete devices. There's a device called uh, the Tickle Flex, uh, which you can just Google and have a look. And it's, it's a really nice way of uh, not showing the needle. Um, nice recommend uh, doing things like rubbing an ice cube on the actual injection site. Um, it, and I think it's all about, you know, just uh, almost reassuring the person that's injecting um, and working out ways that fits them better, really. Okay. Sometimes injecting many times a day might not actually suit that person if they've got a real needle phobia. I know mm. some that have to go on to, say, the pump. Um, because of the needle phobia of injecting many times a day. So it's a very complicated thing, but it's working out what's right for the person. Yeah, and I, I guess that just goes to show, isn't it, how individual each person's management yeah. of their condition is. But when I was yeah. injecting, I used to have the worst bruises. Like I, I would inject predominantly around my stomach um, and I wasn't that great at sort of changing my injection site. And I would just end up with basically a green stomach. It would look like a piece of bread that's gone off and gone moldy because I, yeah. my my stomach was like a pincushion. And that, that's one thing that I really hated about injecting. Have you guys got any sort of horror stories about injections that you're willing to share? Yes, I've got one. Again, I had a needle phobia when I was first diagnosed with diabetes and I was working in a residential home. Um, and I can remember the first week, my first week after coming out of hospital back at work, and I said to my co-worker, oh, I've got to do my injection, but I really hate injections, etc." And she said, oh, I can do it for you. I've been trained in um, how to do injections. So I said, oh, OK, thank you. And I bared my arm and she said, I'm going to use the dart technique. And she jabbed it right in my arm oh. so hard that blood just ran down my arm quite quickly and it hurt so much that that was it. I've never let anybody do my injection since. Yeah, that was wow. it. Phobia was over. I think that was, well, thank you. That's, that's all better. I can do it now. Thank you. Well, they do say if you want something doing properly, do it yourself. How terrifying that <laughs> yeah. must have been. Was she still your friend after after she did that? She she really didn't mean to do it spitefully at all. Um, so yeah, she was a lovely, lovely lady, Kathy. If you're listening, I still remember you very well. Lovely lady. Um, yeah, there you go. It did hurt. Wow. Well, I have only ever had experience with the the very fine needles, and I'm sure um, maybe James, that was similar for you too. But Noni and Paul, back in you know the day, th we didn't have these ultra fine point three millimeter needles, did we? So, so I was diagnosed when I was five years old, and that was 1977. Wow. Um, and 
I was given a prescription once a year for needles. That would include 12 needles, so I had one per month. Oh, um, And those needles fitted to a, a steel and uh, a stainless steel and glass syringe. Um, and of course, I had to pierce through the rubber membrane on the bottle of insulin. And the rubber membranes then were very thick as well, so that would blunt the needle. So we used to keep one needle for just loading the syringe and another needle for injecting. And when the injecting needle became blunt, we used to take it outside and sharpen it. And we had a special little vice that I think my dad had uh, found. Wow. Um, and, and we used to use a small file to sharpen the end of the needle. Oh, um, yeah. So, it, you know, what, what we see today with these microphone needles is, is just incredible improvements in technology. It just goes to show how things have moved. Uh, it's not just the, the, the needles. Everything has moved along so far. Um, and, and, what, and was that again, quite painful, Paul, those, those painful. injections? Wow. Very painful, yeah. Um, wow. Um, it almost like a gun, doesn't it, in a way? Like a very small, thin gun. Yes, there, there was, a, there was a, a device called a Palmer injector, which looked like a gun that you could load a syringe into. Now, I never had one of those because my doctor advised against it because they could that um, they were sprung loaded and they could fire the syringe in with such force that it wouldn't just stop the needle going in when it reached the end of the needle and it would cause a lot of tissue trauma wow oh geez um, wow that's awful people uh, the way that uh, the use of insulin was made but instead of us now counting our carbs and having what we want and then using the insulin to help it you know we, we would uh, people with diabetes back then would have to restrict the amount they ate to go with the prescription of insulin that they had I don't know if that's what you experienced in your time absolutely yes so um, I was I had a fixed dose of insulin per day uh, and I gave that insulin whether I needed that amount or not and then I ate to my insulin wow and okay so timing Timing was very, very important. Wow. Had a well, diet I... sheet. I, I used to have a diet sheet, yeah, of what I was meant to eat per day. Yeah. Wow. Got Two Weetabix for breakfast, etc. banana for snack, and yeah, yeah. So I, I literally don't know how good we've got it currently. Do it like I, I really have no sort of routine. I struggle to eat at the same time every day oh, wow. it's you know like okay. I, I wouldn't be able to because i i'm just so busy i'm doing so many different things i'm running around constantly so when i eat it's just you know it's who knows who knows what i'm gonna eat so i that's why i'm on a pump because i just need that flexibility and you know deciding to go to the gym at the last minute so that must have been quite you know difficult if you had to stop everything that you're doing and eat because you know your insulin is about to sort of kick in and cause your problems so do you, have you noticed like quite a bit of a, a difference now paul do you find that you know life's a lot easier to lead nowadays yes uh, uh, as a child i was advised not to exercise at all because um we, we had no way of measuring blood glucose levels for example so we didn't know what you, what your blood glucose level was before you exercised I was on one injection a day, very fixed uh, timings and carbohydrate doses, and an exercise was just too difficult. Um, so now I'm, you know, I'm on an insulin pump, and like you, I'm very, very flexible with what I eat, when I eat, um, how I eat. Uh, I do quite a lot of exercise, and you heard me talk about uh, climbing Kilimanjaro and 
and running all these half marathons. And, and without these advances in technology, none of that would have been possible. And yeah, I mean, it, it's exponential. Is that the right word? Exponential? That's that thing that keeps going and never it goes at an increasing yeah. rate. That's right, isn't it? exponential, I'm right yeah. there. So yeah. and that just goes to show how fast it's moving. So the fact that we've got, I mean, we heard we heard in the news update, a new, a new patch pump that is the smallest one, apparently, and it will work in a sort of closed loop system. The fact that we're at that stage now where, I mean, obviously, as long as you can afford it, because let's face it, the NHS isn't going to give everyone an artificial pancreas. But the the fact that we're at that point is quite incredible. So I guess for someone, well, I guess for Paul and Nonia, well, James, to all of you, we've seen over the past, I guess, couple of decades, it really moved forward at quite a pace, haven't we? The the treatment and the technology used to treat uh, diabetes. We've moved a long way from the cabbage water diet, yes, from the 1900s when they used to put people on a on a diet which was cabbage water. Yeah, that was their treatment for diabetes back in the olden days, apparently. Wow, cabbage water. I, yeah. I The only reason that I know cabbage water is from watching, um, what was that? What's that film? Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, they ate cabbage water, didn't they? That's that's the only um, other place that I've heard the words cabbage water together. So I definitely wouldn't be very happy on a cabbage water diet. So I'm very pleased that no. we can manage ins- uh, our, our, our carbs the way we do now. So, James, what do you see in, in your work um, a lot of people moving towards is is there a you know are lots of people self-funding cgms and and flash glucose monitoring systems like that so uh in terms of flash glucose monitoring like the freestyle libra um there was before say let's say a year uh there was a lot of self-funded people but now i think most of the places in england have um been given you know authority to get it on prescription as long as they meet the right uh, the right prescription the right requirements and it's quite a strict requirement but the best way for someone to get onto flash glucose monitoring uh, is to firstly go to their GP and ask that they're interested in it or they feel the need for it so I'm not on it yet but I've trialed it and I think it's amazing and it would help with my exercise a lot but the way you get it is you have to be referred to secondary care so see someone in the hospital uh, see a diabetic consultant um, in terms of technology you've got to think that it's been a hundred years uh, nearly a hundred years since insulin was first used uh, and identified and I think a lot of people that I've educated have found that just within the last sort of decade or two, they found technology has really grown, uh, but yet we've not found a cure, but I think there's a lot of promise that with all this technology coming into place, there's a lot of hope that something will happen. Well, I mean, I think all of us have heard that same phrase banded about, we're going to have a cure in five years. I, I, I often hear yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard that quite a bit, but it does, you're right, James, it does feel like we're on the cusp of something, even if... Um, it's not a complete cure, maybe something that's as good as. So these artificial pancreases that we're hearing about now, then there's also that smart insulin that I believe is being trialed at the minute. So you'll only have to inject once a week. I mean, God knows how all wow. that works. I wow. know that there's um, 
like in the areas that I work in, I know that they're retrialing inhalation again. They're trying. There's lots of things that they're trialing, and I think it's just. I think they'll find something eventually. It's just knowing <laughs> when and 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 how. And I think just because of how complex diabetes is, not just people living with type one, but type two. I think it's just it's just such a hard thing to to find that that cure really and that sounds like a good place to end the show and i think that's where we're going to be ending the show a lot on this podcast looking for that elusive cure of type 1 diabetes but yes that is it the first episode is over i hope you've enjoyed it i've definitely enjoyed making it don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app please leave us a review it really helps out that does and share it with your family and your friends if you want to get involved with the conversation you can you can get in touch on social media on instagram we are at all for one insta on twitter we are at all for one tweet and on facebook we are at all for one online remember that four is the number four or you can email us at contact all for one at gmail.com special thank you goes to jdrf for inviting me along to their london marathon finishers party and of course to the incredible panel on the first ever episode paul coker noni dougal and james ridgeway i've been jamie lowe and this was the all for one podcast i'll see you next time